So I have a theme that I'd like to reflect on tonight, which is humble dharma, magnificent dharma. Which one do you prefer? (laughs) Can you see which way your heart and mind goes with those two words? Often we have a preference and I'll, ho- I'll hopefully explain a little bit about what I mean by each of them. About an hour ago when I was sitting reflecting on what to speak about, there was this title, but there wasn't much else coming to my mind. And then, th- and I'm going to let you know a little bit about what happened given the instructions I gave this morning about thinking, right? And the way the mind moves into the eddies that it spins with, and I saw... But in an hour, you have to give a Dharma talk. Right? The thought arose, it was true. Then I felt something in my pelvis start to clench. Oh, but it's serious, you do. And I could see the, the beginning of the eddy arising, the tightening, the closing. And I thought, it's time to go visit my teacher. And I walked downstairs and haven't been there this, this retreat yet, but walked into the walking room and sat a little bit with the skeleton. And I guess you've all seen him, met him by now, and I sat a little bit in front. And it's been a while since I've visited that particular teacher, and it's different every time, actually. Today, as I sat in front, there was a kind of a dropping, a softening. A couple of little tears came to the surface in the face of death. What matters here? So now, breath. So with this reminder, this is why we have him there. He has many effects on people, but it's the reflection that can really bring us back to earth. And simultaneously, really help us clarify our deepest priority while we're here on earth, whatever that is for you. And at the same time, maybe make us a little curious about, well, yes, there's this. And is that it? That the reflection of death can help awaken our spirit of inquiry as well. And it reminded me as I sat there of... Actually, the question last night Natiko read about <clears throat> what's the difference between you and an enlightened person, if there is. And I was thinking when I was with a skeleton, what's the difference between me and him? All right? And I felt, and you can feel when you sit with him, if you, if you are so inclined, you can feel your own, well, I felt my own structure, my own bones, my own, you can see his ribs, and it's like I can feel my ribs, and that little tail under 
you seen his tailbone? I see, yeah. So it really suggests you have a good contemplation, if you like, before you go. The tailbone curls under. It's like I can feel my tailbone. Helps me perceive that visceral, mundane, humbling humanness of the skeleton, so that we have in common. And then I have a few more organs still going. His have gone. The organs are still here. The muscles, the skin. But that's not the only difference, right? Because that's, you know, we're like that when we die, actually. And then there's this other thing, this this what we might call life or this animating force that keeps this one propped up for a little while until it isn't anymore. What's that? (laughs) Have you ever wondered? And I offer this as a reflection because I I did have the uh, uh, good fortune's a strange word, but the, the experience of being able to sit with my father um, shortly after he died. And there is both the humbling dharma and the magnificent dharma right there. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. (coughs) As I sat with him, his body, with some capacity to be present with him, my dad. It was very clear that he was my dad. He wasn't your dad. It was my dad. It was this human bond, this earthly bond, this karmic bond of this particular relationship. And it's touching. I I didn't want to lose him yet. There was sorrow. There was loss. There was memory. There was that intimacy of seeing, um, in that case as I was with him, seeing the haircut that he died with, which I had given him a couple of weeks before. It was a really dodgy haircut. <laughs> he, he didn't mind. He, he, he was beyond minding how his hair looked. Not, not just at death, but even before that. It was my dad. It's very personal. It's very meaningful. And I touched him very tenderly. And he was cold. It was hard. It's like, that's not my dad. My dad was someone that was still animated by this thing we call life. So it is my dad, really deeply. That's my dad. And yet there's a kind of a mystery there. Where's my dad gone? It's a kind of normal question somebody might ask at that point. And as I took the bus from the funeral home to the the local city, and this had made a big impression on me, both the, the human personal loss, very real, 
very important, very meaningful. And this interaction with the mystery, the doorway sometimes open for us to see what is what else is there. And I came back and stood in the local shopping centre and there were buskers here and families here and shoppers here. And it's like, what's the difference between Dad, as he now lay, and everyone else? And it was so clear. This, what we call life, that props up these bodies and lives and breathes and thinks and is sensitive and has wants and not wants and loves and hates. This animated bodies for as long as we are. And that is unknown exactly how long. And this reflection is for our welfare, actually. With death as my teacher, when I remember to consult her, or him, or my own death, when I remember that, sometimes I don't remember that. And I might spin into things that aren't that important to me. And when I remember, there's a humility, there's a humbling, there's a coming back to earth every time. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. As um, just one line from a Mary Oliver poem, the punchline of it, the end line of it is, tell me, what do you want to do with this one wild and precious life. Tell me, what do you want to do with this one wild and precious life? And to know what we want to do, whatever it is, however you define that. And and one of the beauties of a silent retreat is that the priorities get straighter, they get clearer for us. whether some priorities have surfaced for you. And it may be very clear that there's some real clear, yeah, I want to awaken, I want to see the depth and breadth of, of my humanness and beyond my humanness. It may be something really simple. Express one man at the end of a long retreat, he'd clarified through all the pain of his history and he'd clarified that he was ready and had written it actually while he was here to write a letter to his father which he he read one time in a sharing which was about in a way of a very humble offering saying sorry it's been a case of mistaken identity I haven't really seen you I haven't really seen you One person expresses their realization, whatever level of realization there is, and became someone who planted flowers on their local highway. 
for everyone to enjoy. It's like, yeah, that's what I want to do with this one wild and precious life. I'm going to plant wildflowers on the A38, right? So you can really enjoy it when March comes. One man here at the beginning of a retreat, he'd come from Australia, not for the retreat, to be on staff here. And he'd just begun and the teacher offered a reflection, this kind of reflection of, um, yeah, if, if you had a year to live, what would you do? And he got really clear. He was like, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> I'd be back in Australia with my children. Right? He got really clear. So it's not trying to have someone else's priorities. It's knowing what's at the center for us. In in the tradition I first practiced in, we didn't begin with this kind of um, insight meditation, which is very profound, actually. The insight meditation can take us right into the depth of the understanding of emptiness. We began with death reflections, reflecting on death daily, daily. Many reflections that you, you would use visualizations and felt sense of, for example, the time of death is uncertain. The only thing that is certain is that it will be certain. The time is uncertain. Okay. Other reflections like, and there were whole things you would do with those reflections. Um... You kind of visualize all the beings in the world. You know, you kind of gather them in slowly, the ones in England and the ones in... Right? And you just have this sense of all beings alive and you have the sense of them in 130 years from now. Not one, I mean, you know, maybe one, will still be animated like this. When we use these reflections in Dharma not to... Well, it is to shock us a little bit, but not to shock us into frozenness, to shock us into waking up, to shock us into being able to really be alive, actually, because we have this now. We don't have it forever. One, I sat a little bit, maybe some of you were there, with with Joan Halifax, a Zen Roshi. She was here about eight, nine years ago. And she told the story in one of her Zen sessions of a young man, I think he may have even been the youngest person there on the retreat, where, um, and in the Zen session, they're sitting around the edges facing the walls, eyes open, facing walls, a different practice. And it's very regimented in Zen. Bell rings, you get up. Someone says, walk, you walk. You, you have this kind of regimented style as a form that helps you like any form, bump up to the places where you feel yourself in opposition with it and as an invitation for letting go. And she said she rang the bell for for walking and you'd stand up and this guy didn't stand up. And she said she could feel a little irritation. He's not doing a form. And soon realized, actually, he wasn't doing the form and went over and he had actually died right there of, um, I think it's called an aneurysm, is that right? Where you can just go immediately. Right there, cross-legged. 
right there. And she said, irreverently, her first thought was, lucky guy, what a way to go. <laughs> In the middle of a Zen session for her, you know, that's her, it's her passion, it's her life and death, really. It's her life and death. Not lucky that he died, but what a place. You know, what are we cultivating there in that? In this wild life. <clears throat> in the same um, tradition, this is from the same tradition, they chant every night. <clears throat> Let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken, awaken. Take heed, do not squander your life. So the Dharma that brings us back to earth, humble, you know, the, from the same root as the, the humus, the earth, to the earth we return, and when we remember that, can kind of bring us out of our head a little bit. This humble Dharma, and... What I meant when I made those, this, that distinction of humble dharma, magnificent dharma, was what is sometimes framed in the tradition as two aspects. We have many, many lists of twos and threes and fours and fives and sixes, but here's another two aspects. One is the path of dharma that is sometimes called mundane. It's, it's uh, the wisdom that is the relative wisdom of how to live in harmony, how to cultivate harmony within this relative world in our heart and mind. And this is the whole beautiful teaching about karma, action, and result. And there's a lot of teaching about cultivating this wise relationship to action. If we intend with an action and cultivate something with a wholesome intention, it bears a wholesome result in its own time. We can't say when. But we're setting up conditions, using the conditioned reality, conditional reality, to put in place skillful patterning. Patterning that supports the mind, that supports each other, that is beautiful, uplifting. Simple things, I give examples, simple things that the meditation helps us get so current that we start to have a choice about the actions that we make. So all these beautiful qualities, human qualities, we can choose to cultivate them. It's not that we have them or we don't have them. We, we, we're awake in a moment and we have a choice. In this moment, what am I going to cultivate? So I'll give some simple examples. We have, um, and this isn't just for meditators, there's plenty of 
beautiful beings in the world cultivating beautiful things. Generosity, patience, truthfulness, determination, persistence, kindness, equanimity, many, many things we can practically cultivate moment by moment. So, and, and how we can tell something has a wholesome cultivation, it's, it's not about I'm trying to be um, better than you or I'm trying to be uh, a goody-goody or any of that. There's something when we cultivate the wholesome that has a quality that brightens the mind. So I have this really simple practice that I do. Um, I decided it was time for me to cultivate generosity. I didn't think I was ungenerous, but it was time to kind of... I was getting a bit kind of lazy with my generosity. It's like, ah, it's not that important. And I got inspired by a friend who has a practice that every time he passes the toll between Devon and Cornwall and you pay pound fifty, is it now, something like that, he would pay it for the person behind him, as well as him. And I was really inspired. And I go to Wales regularly, and it's, and it's now £5.75, something like that. Um, and I go quite regularly, about three or four times a year, and I decided to take it on as a practice, whether I felt like it or didn't feel like it. Okay, for a few years I'm going to do that. And... I made the intention, I get in the car, I'm there at the toll gate, and it's my intention. It came from a beautiful place. Didn't try and be good or get applause from the guy behind, or it came from a very beautiful place. Sometimes I don't feel like it. A couple of weeks ago I had to go to um, Newport because I hadn't got my passport renewed in time. And that's where you have to go for failing to be functional enough to do it on time. And um, I was a bit grumpy about that. I got to the toll gate, oh, I don't need to do it this time. And I could feel that uplifting of the, yeah, but just follow through with the intention. Yeah, but I've got to go to Newport. And following through, paying for the person behind, this brightening came. The brightening of the mind of, oh yeah, it feels good. And it's not like oh, it feels good, well, that's not really the truth, you're just feeling better about yourself, right? But there's something that just in the relative law of how it works here, that that brightens the mind. Simply does. We can do little things around the house here, if we want, not coming from a shove in the back, like you should be good, you know, that kind of, if any of you have had that kind of inheritance, in your past, you should be good. And there's a hand at your back pushing you forward. And so we go, no, I don't want to be good. I want to see emptiness. Don't make me good. <laughs> right? But not coming from that place. Not trying to be good to cover up for the fact that actually somewhere deep down I, I don't feel good. But finding that place that wants to cultivate the bright, the wholesome, the uplifting, the beneficial. Very simple dharmas. Very simple dharmas. I had a practice here of um, recognizing I was becoming a little, you know, mean. 
It's all right, no judgment there. And there was this beautiful uplifting thought, hey, you could just wash the other cups that are at the, at the dish uh, thingy, the washing up area that nobody else has washed up. I could feel the snarling inside. <laughs> I don't have to do that. They're not mine. Other people always leave a mess. Moan, 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 moan. Or the opposite. Oh, but you should be good. You should be good. But it's the good. But it's the good. Blah, blah, blah. But that part that's like, oh, what happens? And the, the arms come out, wash the cups, put them back. Huh. It's bright. It's bright. It's a kind of enlightened self-interest. Not really doing it for other people. I mean, I mean, we are at the same time, actually. But there's a brightening of the mind, and this is part of what I mean by humble dharma. These cultivations that when we do them and follow through with them in our life, because the path is not all about meditation at all. The meditation is this kind of quite refined part of the path for seeing deeply, for cultivating also a wholesome karma of steadiness and balance. But taking care of these humble dharmas, these humble dharmas is part of supporting us to be able to sit, actually. It makes it easier to be still. doesn't mean it's that, that if we're not still, it's because we're, you know, something wrong with us but as we practice these humble dharmas it makes it easier to meet ourselves, to breathe out there's a little bit more resource there to meet those old residues the pains the, that arise in our practice The humble dharmas on its own, and there's a lot we could speak about that all week. They are also truly magnificent. You know, sometimes we make a split between this kind of mundane reality and this beyond the mundane, between matter and spirit, between compassion and wisdom. We have the ways that our psyche, our mind splits these things and has a hierarchy very easily. So I'm curious when I said humble dharma, magnificent dharma, which one you went for in your own mind? Did you have a sense? I'm not going to ask you to vote at this point because hopefully what I I would love to be able to illustrate at the end is that, yes, there's two distinct things we can look at, but ultimately or... um, in, right in the present of the immediacy of here and now, they are not two separate things. There's a, 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 a deeply realized teacher from the Tibetan tradition who has a teaching where he says, um, though my view of emptiness is as deep as the four oceans, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of sand. 
Though my view of emptiness is as vast as the four oceans, so this seeing deeply beyond cause and effect, beyond the mundane, is vast, my attention to the law of cause and effect is as fine as a grain of sand. This worldly and beyond worldly is completely married. There is no separation in that. And so we practice meditation. And it's ordinary. And it's magnificent. And we practice in this form and we study experience. We study experience, that's what we've been doing We study experience because that's where we get snagged. That's where we get hooked. It's where we get into, as somebody was saying today, our opinions and our pushing and our pulling and and we never rest. We study the mechanism of how we take hold of experience and how we suffer. We take hold of the pleasant, we take hold of the unpleasant. This very, this detail to this kind of moment-to-moment interaction with our world. We study it through our direct experience because that's where we learn the lessons of suffering and the lessons of letting go of suffering. As somebody said today in a group, um, gosh, I can feel something I like shows up and then there's something I don't like. And I'm tired of it. I'm tired of my opinions. And letting ourselves get tired of our opinions. That the issue there is not that we prefer certain things. Of course we do. But the way we get pulled into making them our home. Pulling and pushing. Pulling and pushing this simple mechanism that never lets us rest. And as we get a taste more for resting, we can also start to hear that call, we could say, the whisper of what is not pulling and pushing. What is it like to dip our toes in the water of tolerating that which is not conceived of by the mind? and yet can be realized, recognized, known. (laughs) 
So this, the view, the emptiness view, to see that there isn't any one thing that has its own ultimate nature. There isn't a little Catherine nugget at the center that remains its own inherent thing. I arise due to conditions. In this moment, I'm in the teacher's seat. You're in the student's seat. It's a convention we've agreed upon for these seven days. It's not who I am. If I go home and say to my mum, now let's sing. <laughs> Beyond ideas. <laughs> Give me another. Right. We arise dependent on conditions and as we see that more and more we can lighten up. The emptiness view gives us a lightness where things don't matter quite so much in the way that they did. And at the same time, everything matters more than it ever did, but not with the same investment. And that's the freedom part. Right? Everything matters. Every action matters. Every action has an effect, actually. <coughs> Though my view of emptiness is as vast as the four oceans, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of sand. How magnificent and how beautiful and how ordinary. So I think there's just two things before I finish. Maybe just one. Follows that theme of nothing matters, everything matters. Here's how it fits to you. So this is a poem some of you will know from Mary Oliver called The Buddha's Last Instruction. She she flips between two modes in the storytelling of it. You'll get it. I might do it a couple of times. So just let yourself sense into your body as if you're there under the sala trees as the Buddha, the historical Buddha, but the Buddha the awakened one that doesn't just belong to history, but that awakening, these instructions that can hold this paradox of the humble and the magnificent that we truly are, actually. Just 
Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees and he might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the field. Around him the villagers gathered and they stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by the ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed. Yet I find myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness, to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees, and he might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed. Yet I find myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of the frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.